coming up on The Medicine Podcast. And then scientism is the mock religion made out of science. Because, because science is an instrument. Science is just a hammer. Science is a keyboard. When people exp have expressed themselves, especially in over the past two and a half years, saying the science says this, the science says that, science says nothing, a shovel says nothing, a car says nothing. A science is an instrument. Whichever science says anything is not science, it's scientism. It's science being practiced as a religion. But I say it's a mock religion. Welcome back to The Madison Podcast. My name is Mimi and I have my love here with me, Chase. What is going on, everybody? We are so excited for today's conversation. Uh, we've been chatting with Jonathan for a while now. We're fortunate to be connected through our mutual friend, Mr. Paul Check. And uh, Jonathan is a man of many, many talents. One of the things I love so much about you, Jonathan, is that you cannot seem to be defined, which is <laughs> which is rare in this world that we live in, where everybody is trying to put others in a box and have a definition. And this is my resume that makes me who I am. But you are a teacher. You're a martial arts master. You're a philosopher. You're an author. And you're just a great human being. So we're super excited to have you today on The Medicine. Hey, thank you so much. I'm thrilled myself. And uh, let's keep the master for uh, some other folks. I mean, maybe in 40 <laughs> years time, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just a teacher. Beautiful. You're a great teacher and we're, we're excited to, to jump in and gain some wisdom from you today for us and our listeners. The first question that we ask every guest on the medicine is what do you love in your life, Jonathan, so much that you wish you could gift that to every human? Wow. That's a deep question. But if I had to think about one aspect in particular, it would be the way in which I see interconnectivity uh, between all things in my life. So when I wake up in the morning and I look at the uh, various uh, Chinese paintings, which I, I have as scrolls around the house, and I walk around and I practice my Qigong and my martial arts, and then I do a little bit of gardening. And then I look out the window and see the, the weather today. All of that and more, the Chinese medicine I do, the books I write, they are all interconnected. I can see how they can all relate to one another. The martial arts apply themselves as life lessons in everything that I do and I teach. The Chinese medicine has an innate ancient wisdom which is also applicable to things like gardening and cooking and woodworking, which are other hobbies of mine. My writing is inspired by all of those things. And through my writing, I, I receive a better transmission and analysis of those things and can understand them better and teach them better. And it's such a pleasure to be able to see that everything in the world has meaning. Mm -hmm. And I think, especially in our time, a lot of people walk around and they feel that, what, what, are, what, are, what is this life about? You know, what, why am I on this planet anyway? How can I find meaning in things? And I think part, a part of the journey of finding meaning in one's life is being able to see how things are not standalone how people mm -hmm. and systems, animals, hobbies, professions, everything can touch everything else 
But in order to be able to get there, you have to do a lot of research, a lot of study, a lot of self-investigation. Um, you have to reach out for that information because that's certainly not going to come at you or come by you through the, say, the state-sponsored education system. That's something you, you really need to explore and, and reach on your own, unless you happen to have been fortunate to, to have been born to a family of people who share this knowledge or know people who do, or just by chance happen to have had teachers or mentors from a young age. So yeah. if, if you were to ask me, I, I feel that this ability that I've had, thankfully, uh, from a young age to see how those things relate to one another, which is a theme we might discuss later uh, during the interview and, and give more concrete examples. Uh, this is a blessing in my life and I do wish it upon everybody, everyone on the planet. Yeah, no, I love that so much. And it it's just highlighting, speaking to, you know, as even if you take something kind of isolated, like just physical health, the more people, and certainly us, the more we've learned about physical health, the more you're really digging into and learning that the body system is a whole and everything affects everything else. You can't simply just take one medication to stop a symptom or to achieve a certain outcome without affecting everything else in the body. And then once you actually start getting healthy, you start to nurture the body as a whole rather than different limbs that are just glued together. So I love that. It's, it's a, a macrocosm and a microcosm. And you just, it's, it's, um, we see that everywhere. I feel like as people become more conscious, it's like you, you can't look at things in isolation. And yeah, I, I, I definitely think that we'll, we'll get to uh, more of that later on. But thank you for yeah, that. That's great. Definitely going to come back to more, you know, your experience in diversifying life experiences and, and areas of study and how important that's been to your overall journey. But, um, you know, just a few questions to, to get to know you a little bit further. Uh, one question that I, that I uh, you know, dying to ask you is, how do you define God uh, in your life? Hmm. And then how do you interact with God? Oh, wow. That's another deep question. Before I answer that, I would like to reply to uh, the beautiful things Mimi just mentioned, because I find that medicine is a very good example as to why we are confused. Mm. Because uh, the way Western medicine is structured, um, not due to the fault of any particular doctor or scientist, it's just a way that we have come to be in Western culture, is that we just pile up information. Here's a fact about this illness, and here's another fact. Here's uh, that tendon, and here's that bone, and here's that connective tissue, and they just pile on top of one another. Even though the, we can all see that they are part of a whole, but they're a pile of facts in the manner in which they are taught. And mm -hmm. this stems, in my opinion, from the fact that in Western, in Western culture, we have come to build systems like our system of medicine. That is um, what I would call we should call it modern Western medicine because we've come to, to deem, you know, there's medicine and then there's alternative medicine, but there are actually many types of medicine and we should appropriately name them uh, often as equals. And therefore it's not that Western medicine is the one and only medicine and all the others are alternatives. Rather there is modern Western medicine. It's also mm -hmm. older forms of Western medicine, other forms, chiropractic. Chiropractic, actually, if we're honest, should be called 
tradition. It's a form of traditional Western medicine, uh, mm-hmm. just as an example. So Western medicine is not based off principles. It's based off a scientific investigation, which piles up more and more facts, which baffles both scientists and doctors and the general public, because uh, the facts just keep, keep coming by us and we can't deal with it. It's more and more to memorize and learn every day and becomes too, too much, even for the medical profession. And this is partly why people um, become so, so narrowly focused on very small areas of study in, in medicine, right? Um, there are medical doctors nowadays specializing in the treatment of the rectum or of even specific rectal diseases. I mean, come on. What you study all that medicine for all those years just to focus on the tiny part of the body. As if it's yeah. not connected Putting with down. the whole, right? Um, yeah. right. Or, or as Kramer would say in Seinfeld, the ass doctor, right? You're in that episode. So to compare with, so, so listeners understand what I'm talking about here. If you look at something like Chinese medicine, which is neither superior nor inferior, it's just a different type of medicine, different medical system. It stems from a very simple core principle. And that is that in the universe and creation, there are two opposing forces which can also harmonize. And they're called yin and yang. Yin representing what is more feminine or more earthly or darker or accepting, containing, allowing things to uh, flourish on top of it or from it. And the yang, which is more masculine, represents light, that which is uh, above, is more forceful, more uh, moving, more dynamic, also, relatively speaking, can be more destructive, etc. And the Chinese people in all of their cultural traditions have attempted to explain everything as an extension of yin and yang. So if we were to apply this to medicine, for instance, in Chinese medicine, we ask, um, is a person in a state of access or a deficiency? Which are terms not quite used in Western medicine, albeit Western doctors could understand them. So mm-hmm. access is having too much. Yeah. Deficiency is having too little. Yep. A person, for example, can have an access of body fat. A person can also have an excess of energy. And people have excess of energy because they cannot find a good venue or cannot make themselves use that energy in a constructive way, right? And we certainly know how people can um, take their excess of energy and use it in very destructive ways, whether it be um, in uh, sexual activities or even uh, destroying their own bodies through a correct practice of sports done to access, right? Because they have an excess of energy or working themselves to death over years and decades. Uh, this is an access which becomes a deficiency. Mm. So <laughs> as we know in the Taiji symbol, right? The Taiji symbol is the symbol of yin and yang harmonizing. And what we can see is that the white area, which is yang, when it reaches its climax, 
turns into yin. This is excess turning into deficiency in medical language, right? So a person right. can have an excess of energy, but then become deficient by overdoing it, etc., etc. <laughs> so that's just a, a little taste and a glimpse of how uh, when a system of medicine or a system of anything, which is based off principles, uh, when it is so, when we, we have a language that can help us avoid confusion, because we can define everything then in terms of yin and yang. So for example, another example would be if we have the skin and the bones, the skin is more so to the exterior. So relative to the bones, the skin is more yang. The skin cells change more quickly. Skin is more dynamic, right? We want to change the bones. They are deeper. They are condensed. The bone marrow is this thing that is affected very strongly by the energetic dynamics that we receive from our parents and some of our genetics and to change the bone structure is a slow process but the bones are deep and despite being deep they are strong they bear the body they allow the body to grow and flourish so the bones are yin yeah yeah mm -hmm. so it, it, it's so beautiful too and and kind of like hyper focusing down on the principle of all of this which is this idea of uh not too much not too mm -hmm. little you know excess exactly. or deficiency and it applies to health and wellness, surely, but it also applies to life. Not too much risk, but not too little. Relative too to oneself at, at a given moment in time, right? Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. perhaps if, if I'm 21 years old, maybe I can work 14-hour days for six months. Because I'm 21, I have that energy, and I need to build my life up. If I'm 81 years old, then perhaps it's not so wise. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, I, and now back to the uh, wonderful question posited by Chase, which was, if I remember correctly, how do I define God, and what what is the relationship that I have with God in my life? Right. Right. And you know, I thought about this, and I, I gather most people, especially on the podcasts uh, such as your your own, uh, might, might say something akin to, "Oh, you know, God is the." vast am amalgamation of all that is light and bright and beautiful in the world is expressed for every living being or something like that uh, mm -hmm. and this is not the answer you'd be getting from me today <laughs> <laughs> love no we uh, love a, a broad a broad variety of answers to this question that's why we ask it is to to expose our listeners to all different opinions and insights as it relates to god so yeah we're 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 open to, to hear your answer. So uh, I thought of perhaps tackling this from uh, another point of view, which is quite novel. And I gather one would not hear often in, in everyday life. So here goes. So let me ask you a question first. If we uh, think of the term um, the New Testament, right? Um, why is it called the Testament and why is it new? What do you think? I, that's a good question. I've never thought about that really, or tried to answer. And I went to Christian, you know, education my entire life. So that's interesting. Um, I would say uh, the new maybe comes from more recent uh, as opposed to earlier in history. And Testament is like, uh, it's like a testimony. It's an outpouring of information it's a sharing. So like the newest sharing of mm -hmm. 
what Christians would say, maybe like the good news versus more of like Old Testament could be looked at like almost like, uh, uh, I don't know, very distant and like almost like a, at least how I looked at it was like a history book, you know, versus like um, the New Testament being more something that you could get real tangible nuggets on how to uh, support a, a loving type of life. Yeah. I mean, mm. my evangelical background, I, I interpret New Testament to be uh, Jesus having an experience with a God that is uh, different from, than that of the Old um, Testament. So it would be this, this new version of God that can be accessed individually through one's uh, spirit, through the Holy Spirit specifically, through some death to you know the ego and a connection to the divine through this, the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And, and that you don't have to have these ritualistic sacrifices to um, access salvation through your God, your father. Rather, it can be done in a uh, self uh, forgiveness sort of sort of approach. So that is the New Testament that is different from the old. That's kind of the evangelical version that that I've interpreted from my upbringing. I think those answers are good and they're quite valid. Uh, albeit being different from what I shall now posit, it's a different take on the idea. So, from the Jewish point of view, and uh, I'm a Jewish Israeli, um, things are different because in Hebrew. The, the books are called, rather than the uh, New Testament and the Old Testament, they're called um, the New Covenant and the Hebrew Bible. Or to be more exact, in Hebrew you'd say Tanakh. Tanakh is acronym for Torah Nevi'im Ktuvim. It's the, it's the titles for the, the book groupings in the Hebrew Bible. So Tanakh would be the, the Old Testament and the... New Covenant is the Hebrew name for the New Testament. Now, of course, there is the aspect, as you uh, suggested, of the New Testament of God through Jesus. But the reason that the terminology New Covenant is used is, I think, because the early Christians also presented uh, their take on Judaism, which was not yet Christianity, as a new covenant with God, as opposed to the old covenant, which is the covenant of God with Abraham. So I, I think before it was called the New Testament was the, the new covenant. Mm. And now this leads to, to my answer. So my everyday relationship with God as a Jew, and especially in the land of Israel and the state, modern state of Israel, is always for the lens of this thing, which we could call a contract. So as listeners may know, I have a legal education. I have a law degree. And I also grew up in a family of lawyers. And as is quite famous, you know, Jews are abundant in the legal profession. But what people do not know, I mean, it's stereotypical that, you know, Jews like money. And I guess everybody to, to an extent uh, enjoy a more a financially prosperous lifestyle. It's not a Jewish trait per se. Um, also has historical backgrounds. As in the Middle Ages, the Jews were um, certain ru rulers, uh, certain feudal rulers sought to humiliate the Jews. So they limited them to certain professions, uh, one of which was ushery. Uh, 
because money lending was considered um, very lowly and immoral. And so mm. they pushed the Jews into the financial professions, which is why the Jews have stuck with them for centuries. It's one reason. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and also law. I mean, the, the legal profession was also considered in, during some periods as you know, either immoral or maybe um, sleazy or, or too cunning in a, in a negative light, right? So there is this original covenant with Abraham. And that covenant is essentially a contract between God and the Jewish people. And the contract goes, you worship me. Uh, terms and conditions may change <laughs> as, as they did for the ages. But you, you, hold to this, you hold to the standard of worship, which I might change from time to time. And I promise you that you would be wealthy and prosperous and your seed would spread as wide and you be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. Um, by the way, I checked. Um, you can only see about, I, I can't recall the exact number, but I think it was between 8,000 and 9,000 stars in the night sky, say if you're in the middle of the desert. So I guess that's not quite a good deal because he was just yeah. saying, <laughs> like back in the day, they weren't, yeah, they weren't aware that, um, I, I guess they didn't count and they still weren't aware that, you know, there are billions and billions of stars. So he was essentially, like in the Bible, he's essentially promising them to have like 9,000 Jews. That's not quite a good deal. Right. But, okay, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, that's, that's nice. Um, so if that's a contract, what are the terms of the contract, you know, beyond what was mentioned then and there? This has been a pivotal question for the Jewish people uh, since over 3,000 years ago into our time. And you wouldn't believe how many different opinions there are concerning this, even within, you know, the, um, even within a single community of the same subsect of Judaism in Israel, you'd find people, you know, having different opinions. Uh, in, in, in Israel, we say like, uh, we, we have idioms like um, two Yemenite Jews, three synagogues, or two Jews, three opinions. Uh, because, you know, the, the, it, Jews are liberal, classical liberal, not like voting Democrat liberal. And I'll, I'll correct that definition in a second. And, and in, the, in the sense of... Um, Within the limits of the religion, within what is permitted in the religion, um, you can come up with quite a lot of, um, let's say, novel interpretation about what's possible or impossible, should be done or shouldn't be done. And that's sort of accepted. It's another reason Jews are um, abundant in the legal profession, because the manner of studying the Bible and the Talmud in, in the synagogues and the yeshivas since um, two, over 2,000 years ago. No, less than 2,000 years. Because the, in the time of the, the temples, the first and second temple, uh, there weren't, there almost hadn't been any synagogues at the time. So the synagogue is more so um, something that became widespread after the destruction of the second temple. But nonetheless, I digress. I'm just saying Jews like to uh, quarrel and bicker, bicker and debate over the nuances of their religion, which if you practice this from a young age, 
if you happen to be a traditionalist or religious Jew, that gives you an advantage because you come to law school already prepared. You, you, you already have that sort of mindset. So my relationship with God is defined by this contract because the entire state of Israel operates in this, in this manner. Uh, for instance, should non-kosher meals be allowed to, uh, to be given to students in schools, state-sanctioned schools? That was a part of my childhood. Um, how many businesses are open on Shabbat, Sabbath? Um, most of them are closed. So you have to uh, arrange your schedule in advance because uh, certain things you cannot get on a Sabbath or would be harder to get or mm. would be more costly because most, if most shops, are, most shops are closed, then they could raise the prices in other shops, right? Um, mm. Public transportation is not available on Sabbath. That's all, these are all remnants from that age-old contract, you know? That, or the interpretation thereof. And in the life of every Jew, and especially in the state of Israel, there is this uh, recurring question of, you know, what's the nature of your contract with your maker? Uh, some people believe, if you're a religious Jew, that this contract is manifested by the fulfillment of um, 613 edicts. So there's the Ten Commandments, but traditionally in Judaism, if you're a religious Jew, there's Three, this is 613 edicts, um, pariag mitzvot. This is in Hebrew, uh, but the most important of which is considered: do not do unto others what you non, do not wish to be done unto yourself. Which is, by the way, um, uh, is different in Hebrew, as is uh, love your uh, love your neighbor. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, in Hebrew, that's um, so that these two edicts are. So in Hebrew, the actual direct translation would be love not your neighbor, love your fellow man. Mm. So love everybody. Right. Yeah. Or at yeah. least everybody in the community, at least. Um, yeah. And then uh, the other one is uh, don't do unto your friend what you yourself hate or dislike. Mm. And notice how these are different because one says, um, don't do to your friend what you dislike or what you hate. And this is uh, an edict having to do with avoidance. The other one is an edict which commands you to do, not not to do. Mm. Love your fellow man. So I would say, um, yeah, in, in my life, if, if some of the principles which I do follow, uh, which some can, can may consider heavenly, some can just consider common sense, but nonetheless, they're um, quite central to Judaism. Because as I said, the, the, the whole of the 613 edicts are said in religious Judaism to be all meant and designed to allow the person to fulfill this one most important one, which is um, love your fellow man. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and I can attest that, you know, that's, that's the most difficult one. I think uh, <laughs> our, our mutual friend, Paul Check talks about it a lot in recent times, you know, how can we love the villains in our life and the villains of the world, 
at, in this difficult time that humanity is going through? How can I look at all the Klaus Schwab's and Bill Gates's of the world and say, you know, there's an aspect of them in myself. Yeah. And there's also an aspect of them which is human. Or for, mm-hmm. for me as a Jew, to look at someone like Hitler and recognize that he was not a monster, like some people say he was a human being who has done monstrous things, but nonetheless, he was human. So that is very difficult. So maybe um, pursuing this highest ideal of love thy fellow man and occasionally being able to perhaps not reach there, but at least not do unto others or at least not do unto my friends what I dislike, what I hate. Uh, These are things which uh, help me relate to um, what you might call the divine. Mm. And also following um, what we call uh, a concept called shlichut. So uh, emissaryship, or which is not a word in English, right? I had to make it up. Um, (laughs) um, Shaliach is an emissary or messenger. So emissaryship or messengership is also a concept in, in traditional Judaism, not necessarily religious, but the idea that one is born with a purpose. And mm-hmm. oftentimes people ask me, you know, how do I find my purpose? And I say, well, what is it that about you that is truly unique to you? And of course, you know, I'm a martial arts teacher. There are many martial arts teachers. Uh, you are uh, wonderful people. You're also podcasters. There are many podcasters, but mm-hmm. we all do it in our own unique way and we do other things as well. So what is your unique take on the world and what is it that you can do that others cannot do quite like yourself? Or perhaps there are others doing this, but not as frequently or not as abundantly as humanity should have. There aren't too many people doing this thing in this manner. By asking this, these types of questions, we can find our emissaryship or messengership, or shlichut, this word shlichut in Hebrew, this concept of, you know, what is it about our lives which is meaningful and is meant to fulfill uh, the role of an emissary or messenger onto the world. Mm. So this is another way in which I relate to um, the godliness of the world in which we live to the limited extent that we can as human beings. But on the whole, I try to avoid um, religious as opposed to spiritual questions. I'm a very spiritual person, but not very religious, even though I appreciate certain aspects of religion, such as ceremonies, um, communion, community, etc. But I would say, like, they ask Confucius, you know, he's in, in the analects of Confucius, his disciples one time ask him, you know, what do you think about gods and ghosts? And he says, you know, I haven't figured out human beings yet, so <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's well put in a, in a you know, beautiful, diverse response from, from that question, which we've, which we've asked uh, often. So thank you for sharing. And, and uh, you know, it's definitely felt... Would love to move into um, you know your journey and and some of these exceptional ideas that that you've spoken about and written about um, as somebody who has uh, such a, a incredible background as a as a teacher as a philosopher um, you, your time in martial arts you know 
obviously somebody who's studied law and been uh, been in the business world to to a certain degree. You're taking on a ton of incredible topics and that are crazy relevant to our time. Maybe explain to us a little bit about your journey and how you got to this place uh, where you have felt so compelled to propose some of these uh, exceptional ideas. In order to answer your question, I think it might be good to first define two cultural terms which we said in advance we would like to discuss. And these cultural terms uh, come to us from China and Japan. One is gongfu, and the other is ikigai. So gongfu is what people typically confuse with the pronunciation kung fu. People think that kung fu is a martial art. As a matter of fact, uh, kung fu has become an umbrella term for Chinese martial arts, all Chinese martial arts, that is. Um, as it, amongst the Chinese themselves, they don't call any martial art kung fu in their <laughs> native language. Rather, uh, they have specific names in Chinese for these different martial arts. And we have confused the pronunciation. We call it kung fu rather than gong fu as a lot of the martial arts world as it came to the West was influenced by Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee was from South in China and he spoke a Cantonese Chinese dialect. Uh, and the greater bulk of Chinese people speak Mandarin Chinese, which is nowadays the standard Chinese in which we say Gong Fu with a G. Now Gong Fu, even though it has become an umbrella term for Chinese martial arts is actually not even that. It is a cultural term in China, which means skill which has been acquired through hard and continuous practice, usually a high level of skill. So a uh, serious level of skill which was acquired through hard and continuous practice. Therefore, if we see a very skilled basketball player, we can say that player has got gung fu. If you go to a restaurant and we're served a really good dish, we can say that the chef has brilliant gong fu. If we see a fantastic dancer or a martial artist, um, anybody who's considered to have a high level of skill, which was acquired through continuous hard practice uh, over a long period of time, typically years and decades, has gong fu. And now I'm going to skip to the Japanese term, and then we're going to come back to the two of them and explain their relevance to Chase's question to me. The Japanese term is ikigai. Ikigai is a very unique term, which means something in your life uh, for which it's worth living for. But it is also narrowly defined by having four attributes. So it's not just something to live for, but... It has the attributes of, one, you are good at it, objectively good at it. Two, you enjoy doing it. Three, the world needs it. And four, you can get paid for it. Hey, homies. If you're anything like Chase and I, you really enjoy exercise and building a healthy, strong body. Obviously, what we do inside the gym is important, but what we do outside of the gym is just as critical to our success, like the supplements you're using to support your results. One of our favorite conscious body brands is called Keon. We've both been using Keon for a few years now for muscle building, strength, and recovery. 
Kion is well known for being super clean, super tasty, and super effective. Our supplement trifecta. Chase and I both use the aminos, the whey protein, and the creatine on a regular basis. Yes, creatine is for women too. And Kion's is top of the top shelf. To learn more about Kion, head to our medicine cabinet at themedicine.com and use the code medicine, M-E-D-I-C-I-N, for a nice discount on any and all Kion products. Enjoy. Perhaps you might not get rich doing that, but you can receive some type of job, you know, or livelihood um, compensation. Yeah, make make some type of livelihood from it, right? Um, so Ikigai is something which you live for, but you must be good at it. You love doing it. The world needs it and you can get paid for it. And of course, many people have a lot of things in their lives, which only have some of those attributes. So for instance, you might be good at it. The world needs it. You can get paid for it, but you hate it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's not Ikigai, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think we, uh, a lot it's of like, that. It's like Jon Snow in Game of Thrones. I don't want it. Yeah. He doesn't want it. Though he's good at the world needs it, he gets paid for it, right? Yeah. All right. Uh, other people, they like doing it, but they're not good at it. Yeah. Right. So they, they like it, they get paid for it, the world needs it, but they're not good at doing it, like most politicians, right? <laughs> so that's yeah. that's the scenario there. Uh, and then we have, of course, the um the stereotypically depressed artist who is good at something they love it the world needs it but hell they can't get paid for it yeah Mm -hmm. right so in all of these examples people get close to having an ikigai but it's not quite so that cannot be called an ikigai now when you have those two things in your life both going for an ikigai then your potential opens up for different reasons. First of all, if you have Ikigai, then oftentimes you're not searching anymore. Yeah, you continue to grow. You might be interested in the world, maybe more so than before, but you're not desperately looking for that elusive something that is missing from your life. Because Ikigai fulfills you from within. Mm -hmm. All the more when you have Gong Fu. And I would argue you cannot have Ikigai without Gong Fu. Because one of the uh, characteristics or requirements for having Ikigai is that you're good at it. So in other words, you have Gong Fu. So you have Gong Fu in it. And you love to do it and the world needs it and you you get paid for it. So first you get the Gong Fu in something. Then you can develop the Ikigai. They follow one another, even though these are cultural terms from different cultures, different languages, right? Different peoples. And see how interesting that is. Because if you're if you limit yourself to the study of single language, then you have trouble in the sense of missing certain ways to express yourself in the world or interact with other people. Mm-hmm. For instance, uh, in modern Hebrew, we have a verb which is actually borrowed from German uh, for Yiddish. 
So it came from German, then from Yiddish to modern Hebrew. That verb is to, is in Hebrew, modern Hebrew is lefargen. Now, lefargen is a very complicated cultural term. It means that it's the verb for someone who shows uh, an appreciation for somebody else and tries to promote the doings of somebody else out of a sheer sense of um, appreciation for what the other person is doing and without want for reward for mm. themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't have a word no, for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you know what's funny? That um, Israelis complain that Americans don't have a word for that and that makes it difficult working with Americans. Yeah. And of course, that, that's not to put down Americans because, for instance, Americans can be very polite, which Israelis typically are not. Uh, <laughs> so er every culture and people have their own uh, unique uh, pros and cons. And, uh, and that's all right. We're all different. I'm just saying that, that when, if you don't have a verb like that, like I just described, right? I, then you cannot think in the context of what word would I use when I want to express my utmost appreciation towards someone without a want for myself to get anything out of it, or that I want another, I want to use a verb to describe another person that I think should do it for somebody. That is very difficult to describe yeah. if you don't have a word for it. Yeah. As, as is the concept of Gong Fu, and more so the concept of Ikigai. Now, Chase asked me uh, what had led me on the path which I'm on now. And part of the answer would be that by acquiring Gong Fu, especially in the martial arts, but also in other areas of study and expertise, um, and then by developing my Ikigai, which uh, for... Uh, some years was primarily at the teaching of martial arts and the writing of books, but nowadays also um, the working the profession of traditional Chinese medicine. These things have opened the doors for me um, personally um, in terms of spiritual and intellectual development alike. Once you have those things, it's not only that you feel at ease with yourself, because you have purpose in the world and you work toward, you work toward um, building on that purpose. But also um, for those areas of study and expertise, you are actually forced to step out of your comfort zone. So uh, for example, um, I did not feel that comfortable with a deep study of human anatomy. A rudimentary study was fine, but a deep study, I felt, ah, you know, I'm not sure this is my thing, right? Uh, and one could have said, you know, ah, you know, you're, you're in the business of martial arts, then you should know better. Although most people don't study anatomy at all, even as martial arts teachers. But then once I got, so if from, for the martial arts, I got to the point where I, I would never... Um, up until a few years ago, I never considered myself a, a doctor or a healer. But then I got to see a lot of my students with various health issues and problems. And it just, my heart just ached not being able to help them. What kind of teacher am I if I can 
teach them about life and about the practice of these particular traditions. But when they have uh, an illness or they have an injury, I just can't, I can't do nothing about it. I can only send them to some professionals. Sometimes they help, sometimes they don't. And I'm just helpless. So am I fully their teacher? I mean, some people suffice. They say, yeah, you know, that's not your, that's not your calling or um, that's not your responsibility. And that's fine. I accept it Um, in terms of, you know, if other people feel like that, that's just fine with them. But uh, for me personally, it drove me in the direction of medicine and of healing and made me obsessed about it. And also realizing that for the study of traditional Chinese medicine, I also greatly enhanced my traditional Chinese martial arts in many different ways, which I wouldn't get into to get very technical. Um, otherwise, when you want to work with people in martial arts, then you have to understand their psychological makeup. Uh, even more so than in terms of dealing with violence, just dealing with people in, every day when, in classes. Because if you want to teach someone, make them better, then you have to empathize with them and understand who they really are and what it is they need and how to be a better teacher for them. And we, as teachers, we make the same mistakes that you know parents make. And we usually um, screw it up with the first kid more so than the, the next ones. That's the, that's the honest truth, as uh, most people know. It usually happens. And then the next one, we do it a little bit better. And if we have a third one, do it a little bit better. And in martial arts, that happens with generations of students. You, know, you screw up the first generation of students to, to some extent in terms of how you deal with them, your interpersonal relations, or um, perhaps you're overzealous with uh, the amount of physical intensity in the class in the classes or maybe you underdid you underdid it and there wasn't enough physical intensity maybe you were too rough with them or you you didn't um press the limits where where and when you should have etc etc so that's also an element of growth but that grows through you first you get the gong fu then you get the ikigai then by fulfilling the ikigai you grow and of course um all of us, if we are good parents, then we have a type of ikigai just through building a family. Mm-hmm. But that's, I don't, not, I don't mean this is an offense to, to any parent because I think oftentimes your children can be uh, the greatest thing you ever do in the world. But parenting is also in some other way, the so-called the lowest common denominator, simply because anybody can make it happen. Almost anybody. Mm-hmm. If you're fertile, you can have kids. Yeah. Doesn't mean that's going to become your ikigai. It's only if you take responsibility over it, right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Cool. So instead of I, I can, you know, review my whole life and career and that would take hours, but rather I would tell Chase, you know, what led me on this path is developing Gong Fu, then uh, culminating in the type of ikigai or several types of ikigai, then working with them and that unleashed my personal potential and that's what i'm i've been trying to do for many years with other people build up their gong fu and help them find their own ikigai which is usually not the same as my own yeah no that's that's beautifully put and and as i've you know read your work and and heard you speak on on gong fu and ikigai done some of my own self-reflection and 
And, you know, I have a history as an athlete and uh, played college basketball, but was not good enough to play professionally and make it my livelihoods. Thus that, you know, the world pays for it element falls off. And I don't have this kind of complete holistic icky guy. Um, I'm a, I'm a CPA and I've done financial consulting and I've worked in accounting. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, a CFO to, at another company. And uh, again, like a lot, seemingly lots of pieces fit such that it would be, you know, gung fu or maybe icky guy for me, but I don't particularly like it. You know, I, I get paid mm. for it. good at it, but I'm you don't love it. it. I get paid for it. The world needs it, but I, I don't love it. Yeah. Yet I have this thing in my life where I got married very young. We got married very young. We went through a divorce and had to, from the ashes, ashes, <laughs> resurrect a relationship. I had to learn what masculinity was like. I'm in the process of still uh, learning how to be the best partner that I can be the best whole human that I can be and show up in a, in a co-creative relationship. And as I've sat through this and, and we have this podcast now that's so heavily on holistic health that includes relationships, um, working with, you know, individual men at times on, uh, you know, nurturing their masculine. And I'm, I'm realizing that this might be gung fu for me. And it might be something that, you know, more holistically fits into this picture of Ikigai in my life. And it uh, is, yeah. and, and it is an expression of your emissorship, right? Like we, like we mentioned earlier, because you see, when you mentioned the basketball, that, that's a wonderful thing. And some people take it like, oh, you know, I wasn't good enough for NBA. I can train kids or teens and that would be my path and, and go that route. But you didn't choose that. Then you go into business but that didn't quite fit all the way. But then you sort of um, co you 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 brought together these these two parallel pathways in your life. One of your self development and that that other one of your career. And by merging these, you found your ikigai. Yeah. Because you 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 used the honest notion of the emissaryship that is in your life, which was hidden. Right. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of, you know, you hear this, uh, you see this trend a lot with people. There's this phrase. Um, I don't know if you've heard it before, but it's like when your mess becomes your message, Where, meaning that <laughs> kind of the, the pain that you've gone through, the catalyst, the difficult circumstances in your life has kind of given you the opportunity to shape you in a way, if you respond in such a way, to then go into the world and share your message from that initial catalyst that was probably pretty painful. And speaking to our experience, um, I'm wondering, you know, hearing your thoughts on, do you see that often? Do you see that trend? Was that there for you where something painful or um, a difficult circumstance or whatever like, were you able to alchemize kind of how we similarly were, where our mess of a marriage and divorce and kind of a painful story now has transformed? We've alchemized it into something that can be a gift to other people in the sense that we're podcasting and teaching and doing things like that. Um, do you see that trend often? Or, or I'm just curious to hear your thoughts if that's a, a common thing. I'll give you a funny example from my life. I tell people, you know, becoming an acupuncturist, I'm like Bruce Wayne, you know, Bruce Wayne was afraid of bats, he became Batman, you know, I was afraid yeah. of needles, became an acupuncturist, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and by the way, uh, for, for listeners at home, you know, um, Chinese medicine is not limited to acupuncture. Some people think that Chinese medicine is all about the needles. It's actually a Western trend, because because in China, Chinese medicine is 80% herbals. Mm. 
it's primarily a herbal medicine, even though the acupuncture is, is very broad and vast and important, and it, it takes many years and decades to master, still that's only, you know, as little as 10% of what Chinese medicine has to offer. It just mm-hmm. uh, So I'm saying acupuncture is this was for the joke, you know, but I do Chinese medicine, I do Tuina, uh, I do herbal medicine, I do cupping, bloodletting, the whole shebang. Wow. So th- there's, there's a lot in there, you know, it, and, and Qigong, Qigong um, energetic movement practices, which some people, you know, like to think of as Chinese yoga in movement. And that's also a part of Chinese medicine. So from um, mess to message, I think this is a beautiful way to put it. I think, yeah, this is uh, becoming more common nowadays. And especially following uh, the mess that was ensued, not by the COVID illness, but by um, in COVID times, by the actions of governments. Mm-hmm. That's the real mess. And from that mess, yeah, a lot of people uh, arose from the from their own ashes to build something new. It sort of forced them to reconsider, you know, where their lives had been uh, leading them up until now, and. It's it's a basically a reset button. Now I it's a diff, it's difficult now to use the word reset because of that great reset bullshit <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's been going on. But yeah, they stole the word. Like I said earlier, they stole the word liberal. Liberal doesn't mean voting for Democrat Party. Liberal is just a philosophical concept. You're open to you're relatively more open to people doing what they want to do as long as they don't harm you. Mm-hmm. So liberalism is the notion of, you know, if you don't bother me, I'm not going to bother you. But essentially, a lot of what is libertarian mm-hmm. was it's originally called liberal. Mm, right? There's yeah. a political right. confusion in the States. You know, they people hijack the word. Now you can't use it because it means something else. Yeah. 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 Uh, but only in the United States, you know, outside of the United States, nobody thinks that liberal means you vote for the Democrat Party. Mm. Oh. That's only on in American media and the public that people, you know, have hijacked the word and use it in that manner. In any case, we digress. Um, where were we? We're talking about oh, from mess to message. Yes. So we uh, there there is a Zen Quan in Zen Buddhism. Um, there is the tradition of Quan. Quan is um, either a, a word or a sentence or a song or a story. Word or sentence or song or story that someone's given to meditate on in order to achieve um, an aspect of uh, enlightenment. It doesn't have to be like the big enlightenment. And by the way, many types of enlightenment, spiritual, intellectual enlightenment, there's all sorts. Um, one famous quan is, you know, if a tree falls down the forest, nobody dares to hear it, doesn't make a sound, blah, blah, blah. Okay. This one's not that interesting. The, the really big one that I like is, um, what did you look like before you were born? Mm. which you know a lot of people say oh what did i look like before i was born i looked like a fetus well that's not what's meant because you can't actually you know see yourself as a fetus some people would say that they could i don't know but what what is really meant is what you look like when you were very young before society molded you into having specific ideas about reality Mm -hmm. as we all know kids until about the age of six sometimes until the age of seven or eight they, they tend to be very pure and they're very much themselves. And then they, they are indoctrinated. E- even homeschooled kids um, are to some degree indoctrinated, you know, by the people they meet. 
and in the course of developing our ego, uh, we have to take in the ideas from the external world, work with them, and then shut off some of those ideas as we grow older. Unfortunately, most people don't go back and do this shedding off of ideas, which is very important. So I think this, this concept of from mess to message, right? Sometimes if there's a big crisis in our lives, we are forced to look back and think, how, how the hell did I get to this? And then <laughs> realize, well, that's a lot to do with this indoctrination. I can, I can let at least some of that go. And then you see yourself in a whole other light and then you can develop in a different direction. Um, so that's almost like, almost as if someone got an ayahuasca trip by means of having a personal crisis. Yeah. They, they, they don't have the trip. They don't have the spiritual experience, but they can reach similar conclusions through the crisis. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And, and this makes me think of, of actually, you know, kind of the next topic that I want to get in with you is that question of who am I before my programming? Who am I before my cultural indoctrination and that's something to be meditated upon and, and um, we're consistently doing that because it's like who was I before I was told I needed to be an athlete before I needed to be successful in business and and drilling into that space I think what can help with that is something that you you've embodied uh, evidently in your life and that is a deep understanding of diverse cultures diverse traditions and histories can you describe how important it is to gain an understanding of history and culture from a, from a diverse standpoint, from tradition? I think it can be the solution to this idea of who am I before my programming simply by putting yourself into other cultural spaces and environments such that you can question what you've been run through from a programming perspective. Yeah, I think what you've been pointing to, Chase, is that without a um, second look or another point of view at, at life, life in general and your life in particular, you can't quite make sense of it all. So a person can live in a very primitive, so to speak, village till the earth from the moment they're born till they're dead, have a blast, and that's it. And that's not silly, either good or bad, but it lacks a certain measure of depth and meaning. Now, there were periods in human history where, you know, entire generations did not make much intellectual or spiritual progress because they're very content with living a certain type of lifestyle as described or otherwise. And that is fine. Um, we live in a time of a different influence. You see, the, the universe changed. We, if you look at the, at the ocean, if we go to the ocean shore and we look at the water, then we see that the water is influenced strongly by the moon, right? There, there are the tides. And if we look at the seasons, the seasons are affected by the moon and by the sun. But there are numerous influences as such on the planet and on our lives as human beings by the entire cosmos around us. This is the original cosmology. This is how astrology, real astrology, originally arose. 
I'm not an expert on that. I'm just giving a very broad description here. For if the ocean's waters can be affected as such by the moon, there are those uh, massive tides which can sweep entire settlements at times, right? And mm-hmm. uh, depending on, on climatic and, and moon and sun conditions, then what does it do in your body? And some people say our bodies are as much as 70% water. Is the water in our bodies not affected by the moon? Of course they are. Mm-hmm. We have tides in our bodies. In the women, this is partly expressed in what is called a period. And um, men also have a period. Which is not spoken about. Uh, it's it's funny, but it's tr- men go through a period. It's just not um, menstruation in the sense of they lose blood. Uh, they don't have eggs. We, it, it's, and I'm not saying this in the context of you know this whole um, transgender movement right. that now yep. exists. Right. I'm I'm saying we have uh, men have a hormonal cycle which is different to women's hormonal cycle. And it affects their mood. It affects their levels of energy uh, because men and women alike are affected by the moon and the cycles of the moon. Um, And so there are certain periods in history in which human beings have been affected in different ways by the positions of the heavens and of the earth relative to them. In the simplest sense, we can look at, you know, for instance, during the Middle Ages, there were two minor ice ages, as you might know, and which were periods of great famine, because this whole idea, again, if I go to Game of Thrones, which is a show I like, except for these terrible last two seasons, um, <laughs> the whole notion of the long night, the long winter, that comes to us from the Middle Ages when they had those very relatively brief periods of mini ice ages that lasted, I think, a few months to a few years. And people starved and the sun barely rose up and it was dark and cold. And when we went for this and society and culture also froze to an extent, mm-hmm. but even without those specific climatic changes, there are periods in which we advanced quite a bit and periods in which we did not advance as much. Um, there's certain uh, spiritual sages throughout the ages who have claimed, and um, perhaps this notion is true, that when the solar system aligns in a certain way, that humans become uh, more prone to wage wars on one another. Um, they're driven to do so. Now, it doesn't mean that we must be victims of our own celestial circumstances. These are influences and not necessarily destiny, but they certainly shape the world around us. So even if we're in a period of tremendous bloodthirst and enormous slaughter, like that of the First World War and the Second World War, even if we ourselves choose to step out of it, we're just going to sit there on the mountains of Switzerland, sip tea and enjoy the money those damn Swiss stole from the Jews. Sorry, Swiss, you never apologized. <laughs> um, and uh, you, you know, the Nazis uh, sent off all the Jewish money to, to Swiss banks, right? Yeah. 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 
then the the Germans um, paid off, you know, a little bit of that money back to the Jews. But I don't know that the Swiss any paid anything back. But <laughs> let's not go there. Um, maybe they did. Uh, my apologies if you did, uh, dear Swiss people. Uh, you have great chocolates, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but but the Swiss did did the right thing during World War II. You know, for the most part, they stayed neutral. But you know, even if you're a Swiss person living there in the Alps the world around you is still burning. Mm-hmm. So you, you cannot ignore the influence of that the, the massive energetic influence happening all around the globe, right? So uh, where were we? <laughs> I, I went far with this. No, yeah. Um, we, we were talking about um, cultural diversity and having a deep oh, yes, 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 yes. history and multiple cultures. Um, exactly. So. Yeah. How, how are you going to understand such notions and others if you don't explore different points of view? And the beginnings of exploring different points of view is in the study of at least a second language. I studied a number of languages in my life, uh, primarily, of course, Hebrew, and which I'm a native speaker of. You could say maybe biblically Hebrew is like almost half a second language, even though they're pretty close to modern Hebrew. Then there is the English language. Uh, at one point in time, was... Uh, relatively decently fluent in Arabic, uh, studied oh. Chinese just to the degree that I could, uh, you know, speak almost casually, almost, you know, in the supermarket and such when I lived uh, on and off for six months of my life in China. A little bit of Spanish. <laughs> I lived in Mexico for eight months and with my wife and, and you know, maybe I knew 200 Spanish words and could just get by. Um and maybe, you know, a few words in some other languages here and there, but I traveled a lot. So I also heard a lot of languages. It is important because as you study other languages, you become exposed to a lot of cultural ideas, which are quite different, like Kung uh, Fu, like Ikigai, like Firgun, this verb, which we discussed earlier, to, to show appreciation to, to someone without regard to, you know, gaining something yourself. Also, by the way, usually doing this in public, mm. um, which is also an important aspect of it. Or oh, in Judaism, another another one which is very good is matan uh, basetel, matan basetel to to give in hiding. It's the notion that it's spiritually superior to give to the needy without them knowing that uh, you mm. were the giver and without anybody knowing about the giving act. Mm. Yeah, yeah don't, I don't think we have a definitely don't have a word for that. That's beautiful, and that's yeah. definitely not what most people do. Yeah. yeah, that's true. I mean, giving to others is is usually a, a good thing, regardless. Yeah, but in in giving to others, knowing that you would not get an acknowledgement for human another human being, that's mm-hmm. a, that's on a on a whole other level, especially right. if you give a lot. And, and in Israel, there is this tradition. There are a lot of people who give to others their entire lives. And sometimes their wives don't even know or their husband doesn't know hmm. Be- because they're like, yeah, that's none of, anybody be- none of anybody's business. I do it because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. No, that's, that's deep. I mean, our culture is like, you can give and then get your name on the building that you're, yeah. that you're donating yeah, that, the yeah. or, or maybe it's like a, yep. you'll see like an anonymous uh, plaque, but it'll be like anonymous from the family of uh, Ramey <laughs> that donated millions of dollars. And, and so it's, it's quite funny to see that or even just a tax break, right? Like you, you, you donate, 
because you're going to get a large tax break for it or something uh, along of those course. lines. Of so, course. Hey, I mean, I, I don't, don't let me, um, I don't mean to portray the, the Jewish people as saints because we're not. And most people here also would love their name to be on a building if they yeah. give out money. You know, yeah. that's, yeah. it's, it's a cultural trait and I got to give it to the ultra Orthodox Jews uh, among whom this is more common to give in hiding. Mm. Mm. That's a really cool concept. And I, it makes me, you know, I'm just plugging just a mental note of, you know, looking for opportunity where we or I personally could give in secret where no one knows it was me except me. And so that you're, you're giving me a little nugget here to look for that opportunity. And I'm, I'm sure some listeners as well. Did you have more that you wanted to say on the, um, the cultures and history and, and the importance of that? Yeah. So how, how does one gain a perspective about their own culture and their own history? How does one know that their own narrative is correct or accurate? I mean, it, it, if you create um, a musical piece or you, you have a lovely painting which you created or, or you've been perhaps an artist your entire life or you wrote books or whatnot, but you've never asked anybody's opinion about them. Now, and that might be beautiful because you create for creation's sake, but then there's also a level of subjectivity, which is too extreme. You have to look outside of yourself, which is also partly why um, having romantic relationships and, and hopefully marriage is very important in people's lives because finding that other half is the biggest, can be, it's not the biggest, but can potentially be the biggest push for a person's individuation and spiritual growth, if they allow it, mm -hmm. because this is the person who, whom hopefully you're going to allow to be closest to you and thereby for being most intimate and knowing you best, they can also provide the best point of view on most things that you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They become your mirror. But for mm -hmm. self-reflection because but, your, your actions can't go very far before they bounce back at you. Exactly. But just as you have your partner on the, the micro level of uh, interpersonal relationships, so much do you have, uh, I'd say, partners for your culture on the whole, mm. on the macro. You, you must have a partner for your language. You must have at least one other point of view. So you have, you have a second language and that then it's easier to have a second culture. Yeah. And, and you must also choose not something, don't, don't choose something because it is different. You, a person must choose a different language or a different culture because they really feel that they relate to them. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a ton of sense. And, and kind of into the next topic that I'd love to talk about, which would be mentorship. We are, mm. and, and having other people and, and other experiences and, in your life, other energies we're in a world of, of coaches and everybody's a coach. And if you go on social media, there's 20 coaches that immediately show up trying to be the next Tony Robbins or the next Paul check. Um, but it's a, it's super valuable. I, I think our culture lacks proper initiation. And then uh, surely we have enough authorities telling us what to do, but we lack the wise man and woman. We lack the, the mentor uh, in our life that is a guide, but not necessarily telling you what to do. In fact, they might refuse to tell you what to do uh, when it comes to large choices. So I would love to hear from you what 
finding a mentor and how to find a mentor looks like. Did you know that Mushy Love Latte contains three to five times more organic mushrooms per serving than almost any other mushroom product out there? How did we do this? Well, we started with the question, how do we get the most mushrooms possible packed into each scoop and still make it delicious? It took us a while, but the result is a whopping one gram of chaga and tremella in a mixture that tastes like a liquid cinnamon roll. To support robust immunity, glowing skin and hair, and overall cellular hydration. All organic ingredients, no weird fake sweeteners, and our mushroom growers have over 40 years of experience. They are OGs in the mushroom industry. We weren't interested in creating anything but the best for you guys and ourselves. <laughs> Grab a bag of Cinnamon Swirl Mushy Love Latte at GetMushyLove.com and you can use the discount code MEDICIN, M-E-D-I-C-I-N, just for being a valued listener of the podcast. Enjoy. All right, mentorship. This yes. is a very interesting topic. Um, a mentor as opposed to a teacher. Let's start with that. I think a teacher imparts both knowledge and wisdom. A mentor adds to this a way to be. Mm. So the purpose of a mentor is to teach you how to be in a personalized manner. So you're looking to imbue in yourself a way of being which that particular mentor possesses. Now, of course, a mentor is also a teacher, but perhaps he is not as focused on the notion of a curriculum and more so on the notion of setting a personal example, which mm -hmm. might be a positive or a negative personal example. Um, for example, Henry Kissinger is a famous mentor of Klaus Schwab. This is a negative mentor. So, <laughs> yes, you are not necessarily, uh, you don't necessarily have to be a positive mentor to somebody, right? Um, the Emperor Darth Sidious was the mentor to Darth Vader, famously <laughs> so. Yep. All right. Mentorship is a concept. It's neither right or wrong, good or bad. Now, why is it that we have so many mentors and especially young mentors popping up nowadays? It is due to two reasons primarily. First, because there is demand for it. And why there is demand for it, I'll touch upon in a moment. And second, because a lot of people uh, find that if there's demand, there's good business to be done. And since right. they haven't been... Yeah through a mentorship process themselves, they think, yeah, I know I might as well do it. Doesn't matter. Uh, it's not as if, you know, the academia, unless someone goes to um, a serious and respect, respectable PhD program, which not all of them are nowadays, and there is a certain level of mentorship there, but it depends on the individual. Because sometimes they just read your work like three times and like, yeah, all right, we have, I approve of this. That's not mentorship, right? Right. That's just bureaucracy. <laughs> um, then mentorship is a um, grassroots model of teaching. 
Which brings us to why is there such demand for mentorship nowadays? It's because the state-sponsored education systems worldwide do not provide what people are looking for. What they do provide is what they've been designed to provide, which is to create a model citizen. A model citizen, not in the sense of a good person, a moral or a virtuous person, but a person uh, whose behavior is convenient for the powers to be, for the government and for the people above governments. So one of the greatest sins of uh, modern people is that we berate and look down on previous generations and especially people from ancient times as if they were all morons. And, and that is quite the opposite. Uh, if we were to compare um, the average individual in certain periods of history, only certain periods and only certain places, of course, a thousand, two thousand, even three thousand years ago, even probably um, going back longer than that, with a lot of average people living today in big cities with their flat screen TVs and so called smartphones or dumbing down phones, yeah, we all have. Um, <laughs> then I'm not quite sure that on average, the modern day people would be looking all too smart if they're sitting in the same room trying to share uh, general life wisdom. Yes. Um, I remember there's a really funny story. I ju I, I've just recounted it in my memory. Um, told by my teacher, one of my teachers, Professor Stephen Jakovic, the professor of Chinese medicine. It's a brilliant man. He's also a Taoist priest and a master of many martial arts. And one day he was sitting watching this documentary on television. And in the documentary was shown this uh, black man in Africa living in so-called um, primitive circumstances, you know, still hunting and gathering. And he, the, the man was living in a desert area where there's still nonetheless some wildlife it's not quite the Sahara, but it's also not a lush savanna. And the man needed to locate the nearest water source in order to avoid dying from dehydration. But he didn't know where the water is. So what the man did was quite incredible. He saw a baboon. And he tricked the baboon. He made eye contact with the baboon and went in a, walked over to a tree in a sneaky way so the baboon would suspect and went into this very small hole in a tree and put something in there, just a rock or something, making the baboon think that the man hid something in the tree. And then he went away. So the baboon comes and he tries to get the thing out of the tree but gets his hand stuck the intention of the man who put the, the thing there in the hole right when the and now as you might know baboons are very dangerous until baboon can kill an adult human being they have enormous fangs they're extremely powerful even though they're not that, that large of an ape the man ran to the baboon managed to tie him around with something around the tree and then shoved salt into its mouth and just kept feeding the baboon salt poor thing and then released him now what would the baboon do now he's super thirsty 
Yeah. Soon immediately ran to the nearest water source, revealing to the man where the water had been. Mm. And my teacher, Professor Jakovitz, who's potentially the smartest, most educated man I knew that I've ever met, said, if I was that desert, I would have died from first. But this so-called primitive man acted in a manner much smarter, much wiser than any PhD I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's- so... <laughs> And so we look down on these so-called primitive peoples who are quite ingenious and humanity since time immemorial have had mentors. They are called family members and tribe members. So state sanctioned education system, you live in an extended family or a tribe or even a group of tribes. And then typically um, you learn certain things from your father or mother, or both, but it is quite common that for the mentor role, they send you off to study with someone else, often the aunt or the uncle, or a second or a third cousin who's older than you, or a friend of the family who's a professional at the same thing. Because you, despite the, you know, the stereotype, you know, oh, the old sons inherited their fathers, it wasn't always the case, you know, and people were different. And often uh, you sent your, your daughters or your sons to, to learn something else. Because what you did just answered them and you couldn't make them do it. So, and, and it's anyhow, as people know, it's very difficult to teach your own closest relatives. Um, we can be lovers to our partners, but teachers, ah, that tends to be difficult. Yeah. It's difficult to, to teach our partners. And it's very difficult to teach certain technical things to our children. So we send them off to study with some relative that or a good friend of the family. And this was the traditional model. This is what people did. And they did this for thousands and thousands of years. And then right around 150 years ago, give or take, came in different times in different countries. School schooling, as we know it today, started rising up. Now, of course, there had been some types of schooling all over the world for thousands of years, specialized schooling. You know, the, uh, the um, Egyptians who wrote hieroglyphs went to special schools to study that. But they did this in the form of, it, it was more like a mentorship sort of school. Also in ancient Greece, the famed philosophers and the, the cult of, of Pythagoras was a philosopher, but also a mathematician. Um, there people were taught, yeah, in sort of a school, but was more of an, an apprenticeship. Sometimes you were in class and oftentimes you're, it was just you or maybe three or four or five people with one teacher. And you, you kept doing this for years, right? In martial arts tradition and, and even in law, some people don't know this, but, um, law, law used to be taught for apprenticeship only, hmm. uh, when the university started a few centuries ago, I think the first universities, universities are maybe perhaps as, as early as the 1500s. Um, but it took a few centuries for the legal profession to reach universities because if you desired to be a lawyer, you actually went to a law office and asked to be in someone's apprentice. And you studied there until you can carry forth the profession with fluency 
and literacy. That's what you did. And you had mentors. And so it's sort of embedded in, in our culture, in the Western culture, as well as in other cultures, that mentorship is something we desire, is something we benefit from. I mean, it is, it is in our, both in our spiritual and biological DNA. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at dogs who've been bred to chase some types of, uh, of fowl for several generations. After 10 or 20 or 30 generations, those dogs are just hell-bent on getting at birds, right? And you think it, about humans, and you think like, oh, humans have been mentoring one another for hundreds of generations. So obviously... We look for mentorship because this is the natural thing for us to develop ourselves. We have this natural yearning to find a mentor, but then this is not being produced by the mass education systems, which can cannot cater for it with their budgets and, and the way they're structured and do not desire to do so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, there's a few things coming up for me, um, that I, a couple of points that I'd love to make. One in the, in the community and culture that we grew up in, uh, you know, very emphasized to kindergarten through high school and then go to college. It's very academic based and, and there's very little apprenticeship, uh, if none at all. And what's missed is that emotional, just the act of sheer shadowing somebody who, who understands their craft. There's a level of energetic communication that takes place just by, by sheer, witnessing that individual at their craft that's missed in a in a classroom setting to memorize this has a has a term in china there is a cultural term for this it's it's called a heart to heart transmission yeah mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it's exactly that you you can memorize all the definitions in the textbook but without any context you're not going to understand the the magnitude of what you're actually mm-hmm. learning um I, mm-hmm. I think second to this and back to a point you were making earlier that comes up for me is how important it is to have mentorship that isn't your father or your mother. Yeah. There's a couple things that I see with, with parent dynamics. One is that they don't love themselves enough to see past their projection of themselves in you as the child and thus turn into dictators and tyrants, almost punishing that version of themselves that they see in you. And they're, they're not mentoring. They're trying to tell you what to do and where to go like a, like a tyrant or a dictator. There's also the loving parents who, because of their love for you, don't allow you to walk to the edge of life mm-hmm. and take any risk because they're so concerned and have so much fear for you to get hurt. And so there's this sort of bubble boy uh, idea with, with the children that I'm not going to allow you to get off the leash because I love you so much and I don't want you to be in danger. And so critical to the growth process and the mentorship process is having that individual not necessarily be your father or your mother, in my opinion. Yeah. Also, if you were born to these people, and even if you were adopted by uh, by a couple at a young age, then you're... Uh, so to speak, their project. And with a mentor, uh, you're not the mentor's project, but rather you have to prove to them that you're yeah. worthy to be their project. So it's an entirely different dynamic. You have to, so the parents essentially wanted to either bring you into the world or they wanted to adopt you. With the mentor, 
it's the, in the reverse. You have to make them want yeah, to, I love that. to bring you into the world. Yeah. Yeah. Even with teacher, of course- a, a difference there between mentor and teacher is like in this, you know, public school system, they're not, they don't have to choose you back to teach you. They're, they're coming to a job and I'm not demeaning teachers. I know they have a very difficult job, especially in today's world, but kids show up and they get taught. There's no like uh, what you were saying, that heart to heart transmission always, um, as opposed to the mentorship where it, both parties have to choose each other. Yeah, there's a reluctancy. You know, Yoda doesn't, he's like not interested in teaching Luke. You know, he's not interested in mentoring Luke. Uh, and he's he's reluctant. There's a reluctancy, I think, that's that's important. So that's that's really interesting. I love that. Despite the reluctance, I, I must say that the mentorship process can also uh, be a smooth one in terms of how people enter into that relationship. And it it has it has been uh, my experience many a time. Um, for example, and my most recent teacher, uh, Shifra Brian, who's from Boston, Brian Hall, uh, we just became friends through a mutual acquaintance. And I, I was already uh, a martial arts teacher and have been for a very long time. And he's a, a fellow martial arts teacher. And it started as a friendship and we were colleagues. He's um, maybe 20 years older than I. And at one point, you know, it started as, you know, how about... I teach you something. And then maybe I taught, like, so he taught me a little bit here and there about martial arts. And I taught him a little bit of Hebrew. And there was a back and forth until it became sort of an official uh, um, Shifu and student relationship. Uh, wherein I started calling him Shifu and he became, officially became my teacher. It was a very natural process. But this is also because we sort of understand the type of culture, both of us, because we've had traditional teachers. Shifu is a, the two words for teacher in Chinese. Lao Shi. Lao Shi is a teacher like sensei, and that's a teacher in a school. Uh, so kids in the school call the teacher Lao Shi. But there's also Shifu, and Shifu is a, a master teacher, a tutor teacher, a father teacher. It's literally, uh, the, the characters mean father teacher. So this is a teacher that has a mentorship relationship with you, and there's some unspoken cultural rules for how you get into that type of relationship. I won't get into that, but it's a, it's a whole concept in Chinese culture. So the Chinese uh, know oftentimes, if they're traditionally minded Chinese people, that they should look for a shifu for that type of mentor. Then in India, there's another common type of mentorship, that of the guru. Um, the shifu in, in Chinese culture is more of a family member or elder family member or father figure, depending on the age gap and the relationship between the teacher and student. And then the guru in India is a, a type of a somewhat more submissive relationship where you, you know, you bow down all the way and you do, you know, oftentimes everything or almost everything the guru says. And that has to do with the, that particular Indian culture. And a lot of people follow that but that's just the way it developed in india and indian people often look for a guru and even if their their life's path is maybe they're a ceo of a tech company maybe they're a salesman at a at a kid's toy shop irrespective of who they are they they often indian people traditionally mind indian people look for a guru 
because they understand, oh, I need somebody like this in my life. In traditional Jewish culture, they, they, it is said, every man needs a rabbi. So uh, people typically choose at least one rabbi who's their, like, their main mm. guy. They're, he's their main mentor in religion, sometimes also in life, but at least in religion. And I know a lot of people, and I think even most Jews, have more than one rabbi as a mentor for their lives if they're religious, mm. at least for free. There's one main one whom they, they often follow for other lives, not always, and they might, they might have as many as 10 for other lives or even more. A mentor is somebody whom you can be with irrespective of Jewish culture, for, uh, not, not just speaking about the Jewish people. A mentor is somebody you can be with, I guess, for at least a few months. That's the, the shortest period of time that sounds reasonable to me. And oftentimes, like Klaus Schwab and Henry Kissinger, they've been together since the early 70s. What a beautiful, <laughs> tyrannical relationship they had. <laughs> right. Oh, man. Well, I would love to get into a few of the different concepts that you share in your book, Exceptional Ideas About Humanity, which Chase and I have been reading to each other for a while. It's really fun to read to each other and then pause and like, oh, my God. That's amazing. Let's talk about this. And so it's brought up really amazing dialogue between us. And I highly recommend anyone listening, like this is a really good book. If you love expansive ideas, maybe that you've never been taught or never even thought before. Um, the, the way that Jonathan has laid out this book is really, it's bite-sized where the chapters are, you know, usually pretty short and, but they're, they are nutrient dense. They are so packed with um exceptional ideas exceptional ideas and so highly recommend this book it's just been fascinating and so i would love uh to kind of explore some of these topics a little bit more with you and um you know we've we've talked about here and there you've mentioned a few times politics politicians government the role maybe some of the shortcomings um, and, and as we were reading um, early on in the book, I like star, 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 highlight, underlined this line from you <laughs> because it resonated with me so deeply. Like I meditated on it. It was, it was really profound. And uh, you say in a section kind of uh, explaining some ideas about general politics, you say politics go left and right. Consciousness goes up and down which just hit me so hard. Um, can mm. you speak about that a little bit and, and, and what you meant and uh, how we can approach politics versus consciousness? All right. So first of all, thank you so much for your lovely, kind words. I'm flattered and I'm very honored for you both to have read my, this book of mine and even meditated on it. Um, I would very much like to answer this question, but prior to that, just going briefly back on the topic of mentorship, because there was something we mentioned in the pre-podcast conversation that we had regarding the, the finding of mentors. Mm -hmm. And I just want to mention it briefly because it's very important. I think it was Chase who asked me then, you know, what advice would you give people who are looking for mentors and how would you find them? And a part of the answer that I can remember was, you know, mentors are all around you at all times. You seem to, I'm, I'm not talking to Chase there specifically, right? I'm talking to 
uh, the listeners here, you, you, we seem to miss out on mentorship opportunities simply we, because we don't know how to approach them. So first of all, uh, a mentor can be anybody who piques your interest in a dramatic fashion. There's once in a while, maybe once a month, for a few months, once every year or several years, you come across a person that, that's in front of you and they speak and you realize, wow, that person is something else. I really wish I could have had some more of that person. And then I think the question to ask yourself is, well, would you be able to listen to that person for, say, another 2,000 hours, which is a lot? And if you're like, ah, I don't know. So maybe that's not the person. But if you say, well, most definitely, 2,000 make it 5,000 for me. Yeah, I want to know way more about that person, what they have to teach. I want to get what they got. I want to understand how their mind works or how they do things. I want to understand their methods or their techniques. I want to be like them potentially. Not necessarily because the mentor doesn't mean, you know, you have to be like that person. You, you can also learn to manifest only some parts of that person. Sometimes there are mentors who are very negative people, but you take one, two very positive aspects out of their behavior or their career or their way of doing things. That's quite a right. You don't have to be them. So then if you realize, okay, so I am willing to listen to that person for a few extra thousand hours if I had the opportunity. So how do I get there? Well, first, you have to listen. People like being listened to, and you have to sit next to that person and show them that you're willing to listen if you had that opportunity. So you're at a party, you're at dinner with some mutual friends or whatnot, and ask questions. Ask a lot of questions. Then, maybe the next day, maybe a week or two or a month later, maybe you shouldn't wait too long. You can reach out to that person, or maybe you have never met them. And you can still reach out. I reached out to, to a lot of people. I'm here speaking on this podcast because I reached out to Paul Check, who's been um, a mentor figure to me from afar for many years, not in person, and whose work I admired. And I've been following his uh, publications and his numerous lectures for over a decade now. And Paul Check did not know who I am. And I reached out to him and I sent him some books of mine. He liked what he saw. And then we got talking. I got on his podcast. And now I'm on Mimi and Chase's podcast, uh, who are friends of his. So uh, that is just to say that you can get across to people, even to famous people, but you have to take the initiative. Mm -hmm. And you would see throughout history, if you study, you know, the life stories of a lot of famous people, you'd see that they started out by reaching out to people whom they desired to be as their mentors, or maybe they didn't even imagine that these people could be their mentors, but... They believe that um, these people are something to look up to, that they want to be like them. And then the mentorship process was ignited in some way, shape, or form. And then you can just tell to a person, oh, you know, can you be my mentor? That's a bit, um, yeah, I, I'm not saying it couldn't happen, right? Um, yeah, like asking somebody on a date. <laughs> yeah, but, right. Uh, but typically people wouldn't like that so much because mentorship is a big responsibility sure or maybe they maybe they have the character to be a mentor but they don't quite understand the concept intellectually so that's not a, a word or an, a, an idea that would speak to them if you verbalize it like that 
So rather, you should set up a meeting. And you have to set up a meeting in a manner which is respectful. Show them respect. For instance, you're willing to travel from afar. You're going to do like a five-hour drive. I traveled to China to study martial arts. My teachers did. You know, that's in the martial arts, you know, these Chinese teachers often saw, oh, those Westerners came from afar. They traveled 10 hours by airplane several times, stayed for weeks, months, years. That means they're serious. That proves to your potential mentor, oh, you know, that person means business. So you need to be willing to make a sacrifice. Or maybe it's just a 10-minute drive and you're taking them for, for a nice restaurant meal. But you try something. Prompt them to talk. Just get them talking. Get more meetings done. Ask if perhaps if, if the relationship becomes closer, depending on the profession, maybe you can come by, see how they do something at their office or at the factory. Or I know maybe your mentor is uh, doing renovations at people's homes. Maybe you ask them, can I come by with you? See how you work. See your methods. I'm very interested in this. Express your interest. Treat with them. Listen to them. Then you get to know people. But you have to, usually mentorship either comes by connections, often for family, close friends, or by initiative. And more frequently in our time, by initiative, because we have distanced ourselves from mentorship. There's just a few points. Would you like to add something on mentorship before I move on to answer Mimi's question? No, I think that that's great. I think giving people tangible tips on uh, maybe what to look for and how to reach out. And I think just really highlighting initiative that maybe the best mentors that could harmonize with you and what you need in your own path of evolution aren't going to be um, advertising or marketing a program that they have to offer. Maybe it happens that way, but maybe it's more of an organic meeting that then you realize like, hey, they have a spark of something that I recognize as harmonious to my journey I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to take the initiative rather than buying a program or, you know, hiring a coach or something like that. It can look different than what we see sometimes on, you know, social media and the online coaches of the world. I think that that's important to highlight. So thank you. Hey, Boo Fang. All right. We got to talk about the G word, glyphosate, also known as Roundup. You know that weed killer stuff that your dad sprayed on dandelions in your yard? Well, it's actually licensed as an antibiotic and it's actually being used on the majority of our foods by conventional and even some organic farmers. This means that every time we eat foods that have been sprayed with glyphosate, we are consuming antibiotics. So not only are we repeatedly wrecking the diversity in our gut microbiome, but glyphosate has also been linked to liver disease, cancer, hormone disruption, birth defects, infertility, depression, and more. So this is a really big deal. And you're not alone if the glyphosate battle can sometimes feel overwhelming. I totally get it. But instead of feeling helpless, I want you to be informed and empowered. There are brands that are doing the extra work and going the extra mile to provide the glyphosate residue-free certification on their products. One of those brands is Organifi. 
when you use a scoop of any of the Organifi Superfood blends, you can rest easy every time knowing that each one of Organifi's ingredients, whether it's the medicinal mushrooms, adaptogens, or other health-supporting herbs, are carefully sourced from organic farmers who do not use glyphosate. Because I prefer to live my life without chronic disease, I am obsessed with finding foods that are certified glyphosate-free. I do not want this toxic antibiotic in my life or in my body. Being your own best health advocate starts with understanding exactly what is going into your beautiful body. And Organifi makes it so easy for us. My favorites right now are the green, the red, and the gold also known as the Sunrise to Sunset Bundle. To grab this bundle or any of the other glyphosate-free Organifi products, go to Organifi.com and use the code MIMIFIT at checkout for 15% off each and every order. That's M-I-M-I-F-I-T at checkout for 15% off. Or just check the show notes. Remember, once we know better, we can do better. And now, you know. Cheers, boo. Mm. Yes, uh, that's a uh, that's a great addition to what I said earlier. So, um, as to your question regarding what what do I mean when I say politics go left and right, consciousness goes up and down. Well, politics are by definition divisive, and what we mean by politics is not what the ancient Greeks or at times not even what the Romans meant when they said politics, because think about it. How many people really speak of political principles when they identify with this or that political party or an idea? Are, are the modern-day politicians, are they speaking about the principles that we speak about in everyday life? No. No. No, that's no. not happening. We all know it's not happening. So the left and right in politics nowadays, unfortunately is essentially akin to uh, I'm a fan of that soccer group or that basketball group and which which is also meaningless. Now I'm sorry to say and, and listeners should hear this hard, harsh truth from somebody, but you know being a fan of a group it's it's a lovely pastime activity. I mean I Israel is a big, fan base for soccer yeah. soccer is huge in israel and i spent a bulk of my childhood until about the age of 11 or 12 when i got tired of it you know, going to a lot of soccer matches and you know and screaming and being bringing in firecrackers and you know doing the whole shebang right and tell you the truth this is all nonsense this is empty tribalism at least if you're going to fight for a tribe make it a fight for a cause. I'm not saying it's not fun. On occasion, when uh, I come and sit with my dad, I might watch a soccer match or a tennis match, maybe once every month or two months, but just so I could speak with my dad. And on the occasion, I happen to watch the match, and it ain't so bad. I used to also play a lot of tennis as a kid. This is a very interesting entertainment, sport. right? It's yeah. entertainment, mm -hmm. like you would watch a movie, exactly. like you would go on a carnival ride. Mm -hmm. But I think exactly. what you're saying is it's people use it as their freaking purpose and identity you know their identity yeah so exactly so th there is it's some beauty to the, the social and energetic dynamic which is to be found uh, in a soccer stadium or in a basketball court 
I, I do agree with that. Something special in all of those people coming together and creating this unique energetic atmosphere. Nonetheless, we have to realize and acknowledge that this is empty. That this is expressing our time, our beliefs, our zeal, our, our charisma, our motivation, and our spirituality, everything at something which is in, inherently meaningless. It's not meaningless in the sense that there are wonderful athletes creating a, a beautiful sport. They're making good entertainment. There's meaning in all of that. It's meaningless in the sense that it doesn't actually enrich your life in anything beyond entertainment because it is essentially an ikigai replacement. It's mm -hmm. a mock ikigai. Uh -huh. well, but then again, if, if we don't know what ikigai is, then how can we even think about this as a concept, right? Mm -hmm. And it is also an instrument for division, both in sports and in politics. Um, so I'm going back for, for a moment on what I said earlier, I just want to add, you know, I'm not a fan of anything or any group or any body, personally. I am appreciative of people. I appreciate you, a beautiful couple who's who've managed to get over just the, the most incredible obstacles in, in your own personal relationship and set up the bar real high for the rest of us to, to aspire to reach in terms of how people can mend their interpersonal karma. Mm -hmm. and how many couples have done what you did, what you described? It's quite uncommon. So I've, I'm very much appreciative of you, but I'm not your fan. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, in tennis, I like Roger Federer more so than other players. And I, I admire his ability. I think he's also typically of a noble character, but I'm not his fan. I will not hang his image. In my house, I'll put pictures of my teachers to all my mentors and even them i wouldn't worship them i i, I respect them mm -hmm. i'm not their fan so that's a big difference to to be had here and now in both sports and politics this this is a, an instrument of division you see because the people are swayed to keep their mind busy and unnecessary enmity with other people and groups um, they are Democrats. These are Republicans. This is this sports group, that, that other sports group. And you keep yourself busy thinking about those enemies of yours and how you go, I'm going to vote for these guys because I dislike these guys. I'm going to go protest against these guys because I dislike these guys. I'm going to go into the, to, the, to the court and yell at those guys from the other end. Rah, rah. I support this group. I said, I'm going to throw, throw you know, firecrackers at them, which is difficult to get in nowadays. Now as a kid, it was still possible. And all of this is so you wouldn't actually go after the real enemies, which are the bureaucrats. Not every single bureaucrat, of course but the bureaucratic elite, both in government and above government, they are common person's real enemy. Or it, it's, they're very difficult to define because they are bureaucratic class. 
and they're not a specific group of people. They are bureaucrats in the military industrial complex and they're bureaucrats in the World Economic Forum. They're bureaucrats in the European Union and they're all over the place. And there's like, there should be like this enormous Venn diagram of bureaucrats crossing with one another. And they are a class. And in that sense, we can look back to something that Karl Marx said. And I, I have to make a clarification here that I'm not a, neither a socialist nor a communist or a Marxist, all right? But Karl Marx made a pretty decent analysis at times, not always, of capitalism and of human society. And when uh, Marx speaks of uh, class struggle, there is certainly, to an extent, throughout history and in our time also, a class struggle. It's just that um, it, because of the way in which we have been uh, so-called educated, but as a matter of fact, indoctrinated, we fail to realize that there is a class in society which is acting against us in order to preserve their own self-interest. And the bureaucracy inherently is looking after the preservation of bureaucracy. That is the challenge with government. We need government. We need this organizing factor in and off society. But uh, once we create this monstrosity called a government, then this thing wants to, it's like an AI. We create an AI and then eventually the AI wants to keep on living. Yeah. Same with the bureaucracy. It wants to keep on living for bureaucracy's sake, for their pensions, for their benefits, for to, to preserve their own power. It's a social monster that is almost invisible. Yeah. It's hardly aware of it of itself, except for you know a few people at the top. And and therefore, um, the politics go left and right, but the consciousness goes up and down. And the manner in which consciousness goes up and down is visible um, in several respects. When we talk about consciousness, we often use verbs such as climbing, rising, ascending. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we, we see this all across the board throughout different cultures and times. Um, rising, climbing, and ascending is a tad difficult to do when you constantly engage with, you know, keeping right or left or going between them. And that is the, the purpose, you see. Social mobility also goes up and down, like consciousness. So yeah. here we go a little bit back to Marx. And if we think about the real purpose of the state educational systems worldwide, all of them, and we think about the social structure in which we live, then in this time, if we negate all the, you know, indoctrination we, we asked that you know Marx is evil because of Marxism and perhaps socialism and Marxism aren't that good. You know, I'm not a socialist or a Marxist. But doesn't mean that everything the person has ever written is negative. And mm -hmm. he's written quite a lot, by the way. If listeners would like to check it out, you know, it doesn't make you a communist if you read yeah. some of that stuff. Um and he's talking about class struggle and the, and the idea that um, there is a, an intention and design to limit social mobility. And what social mobility is, of course, 
how easily, relatively speaking, can one climb up the uh, socioeconomic ladder? Or in other words, can you work hard and make it financially and socially in life via your hard work? And one of Marx's arguments is, I mean, potentially you can, but the system is designed by certain elite groups so that it is very difficult for you to do. And I think this argument is still valid today. Now, we might not want to solve it with socialism or communism. There might be other solutions for it. I've written an entire book about this called Prosperism, um, which is a, an idea for a socioeconomic system which is different to capitalism and socialism. It's neither. But irrespective of that, if you want to limit people's ability to climb the socioeconomic ladder, one of the ways in which you do that, aside from things like taxation and unneeded fines and such, is that you limit their spiritual growth. So instead of climbing and ascending, they're busy going left and right. Or it doesn't have to be left and right. could be the, the um, soccer group which wears green as opposed to the one which wears red. Mm-hmm. Just all, all the same. Same ploy, you know, di- different words. This, these are colors and the other ones are directions. Same concept. But again, ascending, climbing, going up, um, these are reflective, for instance, of the chakra system. Um, the seven chakras is, is an important and, and fascinating and deep type of take on how human and non-human energetics work. And I do not deal with the chakras necessarily as they do in uh, physical yoga, but my interest in the chakras is uh, they're used for the interpretation of the uh, individuation process of human beings. Um, so I use them as a representative system among other systems. For instance, I'm very uh, big on Jungian personality psychology and the Jungian personality types. And I use these to help people grow and understand what stages of people are in. And all of these processes go from down to up. They are in a synth, they're a climb. And they're the process which uh, the late Carl Jung called individuation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're the climbing up Maslow's pyramid, right? As some of you may be Jung's individuation is much more comprehensive and and far deeper than Maslow's very broad and simplistic description of it, albeit being quite useful, that Maslow's pyramid. So in my opinion, um, those who have power, whether they are individuated people, whether they be um, spiritually uh, well-developed or not, they would like to prevent from being so, and policy is one of the ways in which to achieve this. Um, in part because if you don't grow upwards spiritually, then uh, you don't develop gongu, you don't find ikigai, and then it is far more difficult to, to make it in life in a way which is meaningful. Because you can still make it in life in other ways. Maybe you have slept with a lot of people and for a short time, you feel, you know, that's a big achievement. Or at one point, you were the fastest 
man the world in a hundred meter sprint, uh, or you are a person who's made a lot of money by selling a company at 25 years of age. But if these are not accompanied by real Kung Fu and then the real Ikigai, then you're still going to be left empty on the inside, as we all know. Yeah. Um, so you made it, but you made it for the shortcut. And you made it when you, you can make it with shortcuts, but then you pay price. So we see people who have won the lottery, a lot of them uh, fall into terrible depression or lose all their money. Other times, people win the lottery and they actually live quite well. Uh, it is often the case that they already had. And perhaps they, um, they had a car repair shop. They had Kung Fu, they had Ikigai, and then they also have to win the lottery. So now their lives are more comfortable. Uh, but they, since they already had their Ikigai, they say, all right. So now your life is more comfortable, but it doesn't change much. Mm -hmm. So that explains a lot in our society, which otherwise, you know, lacking those terms and concepts, we cannot quite explain. Yeah, beautifully put. And, you know, we get questions often about our show. <clears throat> hey, why aren't you guys talking about politics? Why aren't you talking about current political or mm -hmm. social issues more? And one, uh, I don't particularly love that category, but the evidence is in this quote. The evidence is in the fact that politics is left and right. And the intention and the purpose of the medicine podcast is growth. And if we are aiming politically, we're going to be just addressing the left and the right. There isn't as much growth. There is not forward progress when you're consistently going left to right or left and right. You might spin yourself in a circle. You might never make any progress. And the idea is growth and it's personal growth and it's collective growth. And, and really it's this idea of consciousness, which is, which is growth oriented, climb oriented. And uh, it, it sums it up in this quote, which is one of the reasons I love it uh, so much. It's the evidence is in the words that we all, we speak. If you're prioritizing growth, progress, that climbing idea, politics is only going to keep you left or right. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah. if we were to speak about politics, then we're playing by the rules, right? Right. Mm -hmm. that's, the that's the game they invented. They pretend. First of all, they pretend the United States is but if you read the Constitution, it's a republic. And I went to law school. I know that the democracy is not a republic and there's a difference. And every American should know that. And so everybody says in the United States, like all of the politicians, nearly all of them, and nearly all of them, probably all of the mainstream media say our democracy, our democracy, the United States is not democracy. It's a Republic, but then it's not even a Republic in the, in the sense that was meant by the Greeks and the Romans. It's a different model. Yeah. So people are not even they, as I said, with the word liberal, they've hijacked the words, their own game. And this by discussing the game with the words and terms that they invented, it's a lose, lose situation. Yeah, we have witchcraft with words all over the place. Mm -hmm. Liberals, one of them. Uh, I think science is a new one. And uh, I think that leads me into the next question. And one of the things that I love that you bring up in, in your book, Exceptional Ideas About Humanity, is this term of scientism. And um, can you describe uh, to us and, and to the audience the idea of scientism, uh, what it means, and why uh, we should be looking at this uh, in, our, in our modern day? Well, scientism is a mock religion. Um, in the absence of strong 
religious undertone in Western societies, something had to replace it. Nietzsche pointed out to this at the, at the end of the 19th century already. He said, God is dead, I went to his funeral. He didn't technically mean, you know, that God has died and he was at the funeral. He, he meant this metaphorically, that Western civilization has made a concentrated effort, or perhaps most of the elites in Western civilization, uh, maybe going as far back as to, you know, when the one of the British kings formed, um, what is it, Anglicanism, uh, when he um, parted the way with the Pope, right? Mm -hmm. yep. um, this is... This is essentially when the European monarchy started looking direction of, yeah, maybe we can just create our own thing here. We don't really need those Catholics in Rome, right? Right. And then started this very slow process in which they, they were killing the traditional religion, which um, had good and bad aspects to it. And I should know, you know, the Jews have suffered a lot from in the Catholic take on religion, but religion was all encompassing and, and gave solutions to just about every single question and a need in everyday life, tried to answer everything and has developed answers for, for everything over many, many centuries. And then they killed it off rather quickly uh, in one fell swoop uh, by the end. It, it came in between say the middle of the 19th century to the middle of the 20th century. And, you know, in Europe, um, most people are not religious nowadays. And then what happened was that people still were left with this empty feeling inside because there are no cultural terms to explain what they're looking for. They were distanced from their mentors via the state-sanctioned school, school systems. They don't, they, can't, they don't have a word to speak what Kung Fu is. They Gongfu is often acquired through mentorship, apprenticeship under a, ment under a mentor, and that was gone gradually. And for the most part, all professions entered, you know, academies and universities and schools and whatnot. And and then they also killed off religion, and people were left with a big void inside of themselves, not knowing what it is even that they're missing. And then there were uh, these. The traditional model was replaced with three um, three new things which are um, scientism, technology, and capitalism. Scientism, technology, and capitalism. So capitalism, we know what it is. Technology, we know what that is. And capitalism gives a solution on the economic front, technology in terms of how we get things done, technical solutions. And then scientism is the mock religion made out of science. Because, because science is an instrument. Science is just a hammer. Science is a keyboard. Mm -hmm. Science is a shovel. People cannot, when people exp have expressed themselves, especially in over the past two and a half years, saying the science says this, the science says that, science says nothing. A shovel says nothing. Yeah. A car says nothing. <laughs> a science is an instrument. Whichever science says anything is not science, it's scientism. It's science being practiced as a religion. But I say it's a mock religion. It's a mock religion because it pretends it appoints priests who are not really priests. It has ceremonies which are not really, they're pseudo-religious pseudo ceremonies, right? Um, it has moral edicts which are not back up, backed up by any philosophy. Like the people who worship it, it's empty on the inside. 
it is still a tool. Scientism is a mock religion because it's still, it's not created by people. At least, I mean, the Catholic Church, with all its vile acts throughout the centuries, is still based off the idea of religion, of worship, of service, of belief in the higher power, of creating a, a spiritual system to be of service to everybody, whether they're um, the common people or or the bureaucratic middlemen or the elites. But here we have something which is scientism, which is still a tool. It's still a tool in the hands of the elites to give something to the people that sort of feels like religion, but really is not. Look at how ridiculous it is. Proposing values which are brand new, right? It's a lot of the values of scientism were just invented over the past three years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and then espousing them for people who know nothing about science, they work in the mainstream media, so not even from within the, the system, coercing its own priests, the scientists who are the true believers, the true believers among them, coercing them to preach the dogma when they don't want to, because at least most Catholic priests want to do it today, and blurring its message in that language, in Latin which is no longer relevant, but still nonetheless, everything Western science is in Latin, which is ridiculous. <laughs> Think about it. Why yeah. are you still using Latin? Why can't we could have, and, and English itself is Latin. English is an amalgamation of Latin, ancient Greek, German, French, and Hebrew primarily. And so this is a little bit of Spanish, at, at a touch of Arabic in there, a few other things. There's a whole lot more Hebrew in English than, than people would, would be inclined to think. And we, we said we might do an, uh, an episode just on that. Yeah. Because um, yeah, it's a big, big topic. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I'm just saying, the, the, what are we talking about here? This is, this, the scientism is a monstrosity. It's, it's this Frankenstein's monster, which was, haphazardly created literally in a lab to appease the spiritual needs of people who have a void inside of them. And it doesn't work because people are still left empty inside and they're still yearning for more and they will get that thing they're looking for any way, shape or form possible. That's part of our ep uh, opioid epidemic that we have in the United States and Canada. Nobody's talking about also. By the way, I'm not sure where the listeners know that uh, Western powers, I'm talking the, the United States, several European nations, the Japanese um, enslaved China for about 150 years used opium. Mm. At, the, at the height of this, uh, about a third of the Chinese population was addicted to opium. Now, think about for a moment here. What do we have today? We have the opioid epidemic in the United States and Canada. That's the potentially the most destructive social epidemic, real epidemic, that we are having. And it's based on pharmaceuticals made from opium. Yeah. Wait, and the Chinese own many of those companies. I'm not saying I have evidence, but uh, it's a tad too historically convenient. You see? Mm -hmm. Sure. Because we've, but I'm not saying we, not we, of course. Just much as you know, the grandsons of Nazis are not responsible for what happened to the Jews. But I'm saying, you know, West Western peoples have done a very similar thing to the Chinese. And now it's happening in North America. 
nobody's talking about this. Mm. I'm amazed at this. How come I'm the, I'm the only person that I've ever heard speaking of this? You've never heard it before, right? No. No. And you know what else? What they do in, in Canada and in, in all of the British Commonwealth, they, um, in the, on Memorial Day, they wear those poppies, right? What is it called? The, a memory of the, uh, they say it's, it's a memory of the poppy fields of World War I or something like that. Mm. You, the people of the co- British Commonwealth, whose Commonwealth to begin with? Think about that for a second. Whose commonwealth? It's not your right. commonwealth. It's the off of somebody. She just died, by the way. It's now her sons. But you wear those poppies. If you do, you ever think what those? I'm 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 not meaning any disrespect to the brave soldiers who died in this, the First World War. Yeah. But I'm just saying, wearing poppies on your on your clothing. Those are the poppies who enslaved the entire Chinese nation for about 150 years. Wow. Mm. And trust me, I'm not going to defend the Chinese Communist Party. I'm not a fan of them either. But And, and this was pri- pri- primarily prior to the Chinese Communist Party, by the way. But what are you... Do you realize you're wearing that particular flower which was used by the British Commonwealth to enslave the... Ch- Nobody's... People don't know the history. You, you asked me earlier, why should you know your history? Here's why you should know your history. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, it's it's incredibly uh, eye-opening. And, and you know, the, these symbols are, are all over the place. And there's something with the uh, representation of these symbols that still produces power for the people who are, who are in those spaces. You know, as I look- I, I don't think, uh, l- l- listen, Chase, yeah. I really don't think those poppies are there by accident. Right. Because the elites rule by symbols, all right? Yep. Let me tell you a short story. My wife and I briefly lived for, for just a few months in Victoria, British Columbia, at the westernmost end of Canada. Mm-hmm. Beautiful place, beautiful city. Yeah. And uh, terrible real estate situation, by the way. Don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in any case, I was a guest there of a, a very kind parliament member. Um, and, and I came to a parliament session. I didn't know what to expect. You know, I've visited other parliaments before. I was sitting um, on this on the second floor, looking down on uh, the parliament meeting about to uh, to unfold. All the parliament members were already seated, and then they rose up from their chairs and stood up. In enter these two people, Canadians, dressed like British soldiers from about three hundred years ago or so. I'm not sure which period exactly, but they were basically cosplaying British soldiers from a long time ago. And they carry this enormous silken pillow. It's just, just enormous. And on the pillow, I mean, the, this pillow was, you, you might think about it like a king-size pillow, triple or quadruple that thing. Wow. wow. And, and they're carrying it on both sides. And on the thing, which if my memory serves me right, was purple, which of course is the color of royalty was an enormous scepter, which they, by the way, call a mace. It was a scepter made out of solid gold. And the scepter is the symbol of the British royalty, of course, of the British king. And they walk in the hall, and they sit the pillow on this special pedestal in the middle of the hall, and with the um, Parliament, Canadian Parliament members, to, because um, Victoria 
is the capital of British Columbia, of that Canadian province. And they sit the pillow with the scepter on top, on top of it on the giant wooden pedestal. And only when the pedestal is seated are the parliament members given permission to sit as well. Hmm. Meaning, in my opinion and modest understanding, that these people are still slaves to the British monarchy. It was a very powerful show of control. It was a medieval ceremony. And I'm quite certain that the vast majority of people attending in attendance, both parliament members and viewers from on top, did not understand what they were watching. Mm-hmm. But I understood quite well. And this is when, when I understood personally that the Commonwealth is still somebody's Commonwealth. It's not symbolic. Because yeah. if you ask me, the British Empire never quite completely died out. It, they just went quiet and focused on the financials and the and the symbolism for ceremony because that is actually safer. Yeah. Rather than you know waging open wars everywhere. And you know one of the chapters in my book is titled "The Age of the Invisible Kings," and you can, as you can see today, um, there are not a lot of open wars being waged. Not a lot of them. Actually, the biggest war, what I would deem the Third World War, is currently taking place, is a war of the elites upon the people. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not, it's neither a cold war nor a hot war. It's an invisible war. It's a war on consciousness. So yeah. that's what we're dealing with. Yeah, no, it's, it's well put in. And so many of these things are in plain sight through symbolism. And as I, as I think about scientism, and especially over the last two and a half, three years, there's been this consistent theme of trust the science. And regardless of the questions that come up, if they're contradictory in nature to the, to the mainstream scientific narrative, uh, you're essentially uh, a heretic. Mm-hmm. And it, it reminds me of the reason I, I never adopted Christianity despite my upbringing and the reason I, I left the community altogether uh, was when I brought forth questions that were contradicting in nature. Uh, it was it was as that of a heretic, and I think back on even you know what I know from from Christian history and, and Catholic history, and and as Constantine adopted Christianity as uh, religion of the time, it wasn't as much to adopt the mystical version of a faith that was in communities of very uh, poor and, you know, people who were servants and slaves, this, this idea that Jesus was speaking that the meek shall inherit the earth, which was uh, such life to these, to these communities at the time in Rome, that when Constantine adopted Christianity, it was, it was about, let's take this thing where there's already, there's already momentum and how can we rebrand this and turn it authoritarian? And, and I can't help but see similar themes in, in science. As, like you said, the 19th to 20th century, as old religion, Catholicism, Christianity starts to have its flaws because this thing called science is, is poking holes in, in uh, the framework of this uh, agreed upon um, idea. It, it, it's a similar rebranding, if you will, of uh, authority. And it's scientism. And, and these themes are consistent. The nature of the communication from the authority, in this case, the science authority, is not unlike the communication that's taken place for for you know thousands of years as people have challenged 
the status quo. They've cha- they've challenged the mainstream narrative, and although it may have looked like religion in the past, it feels like science now. And and, and if you're making claims of hey, I don't understand. This doesn't seem right to me. Instead of an explanation, or instead of working through problems or gaps, it's actually to uh, call heresy mm-hmm. and ban, <laughs> ban, yeah, <laughs> and cancel people. I think when I hear the t- the term or the phrase, you know, we we trust the science. Well, you've already sort of laid out beautifully how scientism or science rather is a tool. There's nothing to trust there. It's something to be used by an individual, by a group. In this case, what we're talking about is sort of the bureaucrats or the, or the elite kind of class of people who have massive amounts of money and influence that influence this tool called science. So when I hear people say, I trust the science, what I'm hearing is you're trusting the elites. Is that how, how you sort of hear it? I hear it as... Um... I trust the system to retain the status quo for me. So I'm not threatened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And all of those people say they trust in the science. Of course, they don't trust in the science. Did they read their their research papers even? Do they understand statistics in order to analyze those research papers? I mean, I've read a lot of research throughout my life. And one of the problems we have with science is, is it's very elitist. Because in order to read research papers, you have to, to, to have had a really high education. Mm-hmm. The language is convoluted. It's usually absent of illustrations and photographs, especially. And it's using intentionally very vague and difficult language. And when it does include anything visual, it's usually quite abstract and uh, looks like nothing like anything you would encounter in real life. It's lacking the connection with the um, everyday present and the needs of people. It's very detached. It's intentionally called like hospitals. And what, what is called is not alive. It's the opposite of living. It's dead text. As an author, I can't stand it. It pains me to, to read a research paper every single time. Yeah. None of them are written well. Have you ever seen a research paper which was written well from a literary standpoint? No, it's, br- it's brutal. It's brutal to get through. Yeah, it's uh, and I actually do read quite a bit, you know, related to the products that we uh, that we promote and that we provide to people because so much there there is a lot of research behind you know some of the products, and so I do have to get into the weeds and I you know it'll take me. 20 minutes to read a paragraph and dissect it in a, in such a way that I could then teach it to someone. So it's a lot of work. And so, yeah, it, it, the common person is not, they're trusting the headlines, the news articles. Um, it's not the actual science because as we know, science can be mani- manipulated to reflect the, the desired outcomes of who may be paying for the study, who may be incentivized to have a certain outcome. So it's not even that people are even looking at the raw data, which would be even more confusing. So it's just, it's not a black and white. There's so much nuance to this conversation. And unfortunately, as Chase said at the very beginning of this conversation, we like boxes, you know, as, as humans, we like to be like, oh, that's that, that's this, that's black, that's white, that's left, that's right. It's so hard to live in the nuance and keep asking important questions 
um, you know, questioning your own beliefs, even like it is a, it's a ninja life skill. I feel like these days. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. Mimi. I wholeheartedly concur with you. And I think that if listeners could just remember one thing about science, every time they hear, oh, science is this, scientists say that, scientists are people. Yeah. Think about these people. Just imagine the person who wrote that research paper or article. Imagine if you met them at a restaurant or a supermarket or, at, or uh, you know, going to see a soccer match or you, you just happen to sit next to them at the cinema. Guess what? There are people just like you. Mm-hmm. They just happen to, to I, I'm a person just like you. We only happen to specialize in different areas of, of study. So what they write cannot be gospel. They are simply professionals, supposedly, hopefully. <laughs> so, and they're not very skilled at expressing their ideas in writing. Let me tell you that. The majority of them. So if you read something, and it doesn't make sense to you, and you feel that you could have written this better, then maybe, just maybe, that's an everyday person like you expressing their opinion. Doesn't make it gospel. Yeah. 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 yeah I love that. This is all, everything we've talked about thus far is um, highlighting something that, uh, you know, a theme that we talk about in almost every single podcast episode, which is em- empowering the individual to acquire the tools in life to, you know, we've never used the terms Gong Fu and Ikigai on our podcast, but now we will. Um, but those concepts people can understand they're, they're, they're quite graspable for people. And, um, we, we talk about this empowering empowerment of the individual to ask questions, to look deeper, to dissect and peel back the layers of our own programming and indoctrination and just, start to get curious. You don't have to demonize it, but just get curious about this life experience. And, um, you know, everything that we've talked about today is just pointing back to the individual. The individual is the one who develops a gung fu. It's not a corporation. It's not a business. It's not a group. It's not even a community. It has to be an individual process and journey. The, the ikigai, uh, you know, stepping into that and evaluating that for your own life. It, it has to come down to the individual, not us putting our trust and, you know, hope in some external figure, whether that be, you know, father, God in the sky or a government or our favorite sports team. It has to come down to our individual self intuition and relationship to every aspect of our life. And I love that everything here has just further highlighted that. So thank you. Thank you very much. And, and if I might end with um, a positive note about how we can improve yeah. the use of language, yeah. because we talked about the hijacking of language, then I think English speakers must come up with their own terms for Kung Fu and Ikigai. Mm-hmm. One of my future book projects, which, which are numerous because I, I write 12 books at the same time. Wow. <laughs> um, it's called, uh, in Hebrew, it's called Treasure of the Israelis. And one part of that book consists of a dictionary of Hebrewizing uh, a lot of foreign words into the Hebrew language, including Gong Fu and Ikigai, and a lot of words that we basically use almost sounding like uh, their English counterparts in the Hebrew language nowadays, but we should have a Hebrew equivalence for. So my thinking is, uh, you fellas, 
or somebody has to come up with English terms for Gong Fu and Ikigai. So you wouldn't have to use the other languages. Yeah. No, that's a really, we'll, that. we'll, we'll get right to it. And maybe we can come <laughs> up with something, at least for our community of podcast yeah. listeners, that when we use these terms in the future, maybe, um, maybe we can put our own spin on it and our own um, flair, if you will. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but in doing so, don't just go for what sounds cool. Mm-hmm. or is something that's easy to, to brand, but rather also look into the historical roots of words. For instance, if you want the word Gong Fu to be a derivative of the word skill, like for instance, if you want to call it skillate, just making up something, right? Make it in context with other English words. So it would make sense. Yeah. And that, that, that way you work towards the improvement and the evolution of the language which is something that's seldom done consciously by English speakers. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. No, it's a good reminder. Thank you for that. Well put. And uh, thank you so much for your, your time, Jonathan. I encourage everybody uh, who is listening to check out Jonathan's books. He mentioned a couple of them today. Uh, We've been enjoying exceptional ideas about humanity. Um, But where can people find, find more of you, Jonathan? I recommend everybody listen to the, to the Paul check interview that, that Jonathan had here a couple months ago. It's, it's profound and beautiful and, and really uh, diverse from this conversation that we've had today. Uh, but where else can people find you? Thank you so very much. Um, you may find me on uh, either YouTube, Amazon, or on my official website. On YouTube, you can just write Jonathan Bluestein. That's my name. Jonathan, you know how to spell. Bluestein is spelled B-L-U-E-S-T-E-I-N. B-L-U-E-S-T-E-I-N. Jonathan Bluestein, either on YouTube or on Amazon. That's better to write my name on Amazon because some of my books' names, for whatever reason, uh, they don't let their search engine in my books. <laughs> I don't know whether it's a conspiracy or just an error. And my official website is at blue, like the color blue, jade like the stone jade, society like society, bluejadesociety.com. All right. And we'll definitely have all those links in the show notes, you guys. So if you missed anything there, just just check the show notes and everything will be there. Um, Jonathan, the last question that we ask every guest, we're curious about forming conscious relationships with every aspect of our life and looking for the real medicines. That's why we call it the medicine podcast. So for you, what currently feels like medicine? What has always felt like medicine for me is working with plants. At any capacity. Uh, It's widely acknowledged and recognized also in Western science that gardening is one of the healthiest hobbies you can have. Wherever and whenever I go, I grow plants. There's some plants I always have, like rosemary, aloe vera, uh, thyme. Seasonally, I like to grow tomatoes. um, And also um, wormwood. Uh, the Middle Eastern version that's um, tree wormwood. Mm. Uh, tree, Ar- Artemisia arborescence, that's a very good medicinal plant. And mint, uh, Middle Eastern peppermint. It's a, very, it's a wonderful plant to have uh, in your tea and it's a great medicinal plant. I always have my plants when I have a garden, I, I grow a lot of them. Currently, I, I have uh, a lot of planters around the house on a windowsill. Just do it. It yeah. brings so much joy and health and oxygen to your life. And that's why I'm also big on herbalism in Chinese medicine. That's the yeah. thing I, I like most to do. And 
building your relationship with plants, whether just um, you know their menthols or uh, edible plants or herbal medicines. They're all wonderful. Cultivate that relationship that always feels like medicine to me. Love it. That's such a great answer. And it's something that everyone can do in some capacity. So yeah, we love that. Absolutely. Thanks everybody for listening. Thank you, Jonathan, so much. Thank you. Stay curious. uh, Get interested. uh, Get your hand on on some plants. And (laughs) uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for hanging in there. Thank Uh, you, Jonathan, for all your wisdom. We really appreciate you. And I'm sure we'll have you back on at some point. Thank you for the opportunity. Have a wonderful rest of day. Thank you. All right, you guys, thanks for hanging in and we'll talk to you next time. Go spread some light. Okay, bye. Hey friend, thanks for listening. Did you hear anything today that expanded your mind, made you laugh, touched your soul, or caused you to think differently about this topic? I hope so. I invite you to share this episode with someone you love. It takes 30 seconds and has the potential for a great ripple effect. Our world needs more people having real, honest, and open-minded dialogue on big topics. And you never know, you may just change their entire day. We love you and appreciate you being here with us. Cheers.